welcome everyone to the REST podcast, where our goal is to help each and every one of you displace confusion, chaos, and dis-ease in order to heal and find significance in life. I am your host, Natalie Williams, and I am here with the author of The Reconstitution Method for Healing and Rest, Virginia Dixon. Hi, Virginia. It's so cute. You really love doing this. <laughs> I, I do. She says this with so much enthusiasm. I always begin to lose my voice every time we you start do. one of these things. I, I know. know. It's so, so interesting. So I'm glad you enjoy it. I do. I do. Thank <laughs> you. All right. So for this episode, we have former professional NFL athlete Brett Farinez here of the Carolina Panthers. So you're here to speak about your life as an athlete and how those seasons of training really impacted your personal life. So we're really excited to have you today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. (laughs) All right, Virginia. I know that you're really excited for this conversation, too, because you love football. Football. (laughs) I know. It was funny, but we were talking about how in the 70s, well, I always loved football, right? Mm-hmm. And being from South America, you know, when there's big soccer games, like the country shuts down. The courthouse <laughs> has TV goings. There's TVs on the streets. It's just crazy. But when we came to America, soccer wasn't as big of a deal. So I grew to love football. But I was out of control, <laughs> completely out of control. <laughs> and it wasn't until we had our first baby that I realized, oh my gosh, wait a minute. Saturday, I watch college ball all day. Sunday, NFL. Yep. Big game, right? (laughs) And then, hello, Monday, Monday night football, right? And I realized that's three out of seven days. I never just sit, right? But it's three out of seven days that my mind is completely wrapped up in this sport and anyway so I was out of control so after I had a baby our first child I realized okay this is becoming a problem (laughs) and I'll never forget when one Monday she probably did this numerous times but it really pierced my conscience my little girl runs up to the tv and was tapping on the screen and I thought what's wrong and it's Monday night football Mm -hmm. and she'd heard me talk about it but it's like she didn't have words right so is it on and then I turned on the tv and I said Morgan it's Monday night football are you ready for some football and she just ran circles around the couch with her little arms up in the air (laughs) and it was the sweetest thing and I thought okay I've got to rethink my priorities. <laughs> so, Brett, it's fun. So, while yep. we are waiting for you to come um, today, Natalie, I thought, Natalie, you know what? I've matured since then. I've left all that behind me now. I don't watch football at all. You replaced yep. it with books. I replaced it with books. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, so it was fun. It's fun to have you here, Brett. It's great to be here. And we've been talking about seasons of life. I've had the opportunity to work with you on some personal things pertaining to life and wholeness and wellness and family and all of that. And you were one of my first picks because I tend to look at seasons of life. And in the last episode, I kind of broke this down a little bit more as what seasons of life require of us. And sometimes there's seasons to plant and then there's seasons to train and then there's seasons to fight. I talked a little bit in the last segment how my dad really cultivated this deep understanding of what all those things entailed. And for some reason, they just stuck with me. And then I read through the book of Ecclesiastes Mm -hmm. and he put everything in so much context. And then, of course, the book of Proverbs, it talks about wisdom and living. And these just became cornerstones for me that really helped stabilize me and help give me focus during times of great confusion and chaos and dis-ease. Does this require fighting, training, or planting? Mm -hmm. And so those things gave me a foothold no matter what was happening in my life. So it's so fun to have you here to talk a little bit about your story and your life. But as an athlete, what that season of life required of you mm-hmm. i mean what what is even the anatomy of a who who becomes a professional athlete for me it was 
God, when I was fifth grade, I remember in front of the TV watching the Steelers play. Mm-hmm. And then also witnessing my neighbor across the street. He was a rabid Oakland Raiders fan. And he would go through three or four coffee tables per season. And they won what? probably 80% of the time. But <laughs> he had a little PTSD uh, from the war. And, uh, oh, my. And, and he got me to become this rabid Oakland Raider fan. And so much that, you know, I just aspired when I was in fifth grade to play professional football. And so I started to play, you know, flag football and then after flag eighth grade was pop warner and then just and we had a, a very dynamic second in the nation high school that i went to uh, what we was that ranked second in the nation cordova high school up in sacramento and so with that you know we had a lot of focus on our team and i had san diego state come out and take a look at me and they offered me a scholarship and i had a few other options as well but i think just the the will within me. And I, I think I, I made football an idol at a young age, like a lot of us do. I mean, it really it has become iconic in, yeah. in America. And it became, because I have a son that was an athlete too, two of them. But one of them went all the way and he went to college. Mm-hmm. But I used to always say to him, remember, it's not who you are, it's just what you do. And he'd say, oh, I know, Mom, I know. Well, make sure you don't get those things confused. But when it does become an idol in our life, it is what we do, it's who we are, Mm -hmm. and it permeates every area of our life, right? Yep, Mm -hmm. absolutely. When did you really realize that, you know, you played in college, and then of course you went on to play professionally, and didn't you Mm -hmm. play with the Rams as well? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I started with the Rams for four years, and then I went to the Atlanta Falcons after that. I went to the San Francisco 49ers, Mm -hmm. Houston Oilers, and then I finished my inaugural year, the last year of my career with the Carolina Panthers. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. yeah. By the way, we never went through any coffee tables, but I did <laughs> not sit down yeah. most of the time through all the games. And my neighbors knew football games were on because I was very loud, but we went through pizzas like you guys went through tables, mm-hmm. coffee tables. <laughs> you know, just as a side note, I, I did play abroad in front of two very prominent soccer stadium fans. I mean, they oh, were wow. just, and they were, it, we, we played in Barcelona in 93 when I was with the San Francisco 49ers. Wow. And we also played 94 when I was with the Oilers. We played the Cowboys in Mexico City. And back to back, those fans were the best. They were soccer fans. <laughs> they they were singing songs. They were the largest <laughs> crowd in NFL history. Wow. Uh, and we, they deemed it the Mud Bowl. It was 1994. It was just incredible. It was raining and the fans <laughs> were singing. And I'm like, I love these fans. They're incredible. You know, yeah. we played in Japan and whenever we would punt, they would just clap and cheer and they thought the higher the ball went the better we did and you know it was was incredible how that's so cool it's just different people's perspective of of the game yeah was you know but the soccer fans were incredible they are there's nothing like them until their team loses Loses. oh it can be really crazy Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's so fun when did you begin to realize wait I think some things are off balance because you and I have talked about Mm -hmm. this a little bit when your conscience in the rest vocabulary, we talk about our soul, our mind, our heart, our will, our conscience, that cavity in the center of our chest Mm -hmm. being the primary sphere of government as a man thinks in his heart. So he is when throughout the pilgrimage, you're very handsome. You've been very successful. You have a beautiful family. Your boys are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder, when did you start thinking, oh, I, I'm slipping, yep. I'm losing. Mm-hmm. And we know that idols destroy us. So when did it was that begin to The slip? season of 1989, my second year with the Rams, I believe the year that I came to Christ. And it was when I started getting discipled from a gentleman named Chuck Obramski. He was our chaplain for the Rams, and then he became our pastor at our church. But Chuck was very influential in really explaining discipleship, explaining repentance to me, and really taking me through what it looks like to be a Christian, first and foremost, and then a professional athlete. Well, what made you hunger for that? What made you think, wait, there's a hole in my heart. Mm-hmm. Something's missing. My life is out of balance, yeah. harmony, and coherence. I because I, I put football as an idol. Okay, so from rewind this a little bit. My freshman year, I was 200, 
three pounds soaking wet in, wow. in college. Yeah. And for an outside linebacker, that's just not very big. So I, I planned ahead of time that if I'm not big enough, by the time I'm a senior, I'm going to take a cycle of steroids and get big enough, and then the NFL will want me. I started as, as a freshman, had some success, but the, I just was, you know, I was gaining weight, and then I would go into camp and lose it all. Mm. And so I just thought, you know, this is defeating. I'm never going to get to the NFL. That's my dream. That's my idol, That which I didn't know at the time. Anything that you place above God is an idol. And I, yeah. and I remember I sold my surfboard in college because I, I would stay out in the ocean and uh, surf and then I would lose weight. So I'm like, you know, forget it. Anything that gets in my way of football is out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Except the Lord. I, you know, I prayed a prayer when I was 19 years old, never was discipled, never really had a hunger and never read my Bible. And I just thought because I prayed a prayer that I was in, I was good. But you, what you said is so important and I don't want people to, who are listening, our listening audience to miss it. Anything that usurps the place of your deepest convictions that say, hey, wait, I was meant for more than this. Absolutely. And although I love this and I'm doing it, there's this hole in my heart. And I always say the law of God is written in the heart of man. It's the conscience that bears witness. So it's your conscience that was quenched. Yeah. And it's really the gauge that God uses to to say, wait a minute, you're settling. I have so much more for you than Mm -hmm. this. And yeah. so anyway, I didn't so mean in, to interrupt you. I just want to make sure people are tracking with that in the context of what we talk about, how things begin to unravel when mm-hmm. we don't listen to those convictions. Sure. So at 19, what did you do about it then? I was a normal student athlete. You know, I wasn't walking the walk and, and I knew it. I just, you know, but I wasn't hypocritical. I just, I didn't know any different. I didn't know that. This is, in fact, the Word of God. I didn't know that, you know, just because I, I was never really deeply discipled at that point. And nobody introduced me to... The discipline maybe required or... The well, it's, it's, a dis- it's a discipline, but it's also just show me in God's Word that this is, in fact, him, His Word. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize it. And I was truly convicted, I think, for the first time in 1989 when I was sleeping with my girlfriend. I was going out and drinking and I was doing, doing steroids just to gain weight. And, uh, I remember going to Chuck and saying, Chuck, I, I feel dirty. I, I just, I absolutely feel dirty. And this is mid season, right? Mm-hmm. So at that point he just said, Brett, you know what, I'm going to take you under my wing and I'm, I'm going to disciple you. I don't know if he said that, you know, but he just, just made it a habit of calling me, mentored oh. me, was always there. I answered all, all the questions that I had. And then at that point, I just, I was broken. The first time I I think I ever truly repented was 1989. And repented is just having the conviction and turning the other way, right? Yeah, just change. It's a change of mind. And so Mm -hmm. you, you, it's not just getting rid of all your sin forever. It's, you know, as Christians, we struggle. We struggle with sin. We fight against it. As humans. Uh, Yeah. And I, I just want to interject a thought because it came to me while I was having just a quiet time of deep reflection for a number of days. That sin is really a violation of conscience, is an assault we commit against our deepest convictions. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I think that's why God says he hates sin. Because when we sin, it's a violation we commit against ourselves, and it's suicide. Mm -hmm. Everybody has a different sensitivity, perhaps, to things. So we have to be careful that we don't judge and condemn each other, Mm -hmm. but that we're willing to restore each other when we see these convictions. And that's what this man saw in you yes what year was it when you were 19 it was 1984 so 84 yeah so five years mm-hmm. wow five years later and then the bible became it, it became alive to me and repentance was just something that i longed to do at that point what you did know? you have to turn from that had, had gotten from, completely out of control from putting football above god I was willing to compromise what I knew was wrong and not not right, uh, mm-hmm. taking steroids, uh, even though there were probably 400 athletes that were tested positive for steroids in 1988 when they first started testing. testing they didn't yeah. implement, but they implemented in 1989. That year, I, I broke my back. I had a fractured vertebrae, and I was also taking a small dose just to get my weight and strength back because the mm-hmm. NFL season is... 16 weeks plus seven weeks of, of camp, which is brutal. Hell week, yeah. And then um, mm-hmm. hell seven weeks. Hell, hell, <laughs> yeah. hell seven. Hell months. Yeah. And then typically you have playoffs. So that's a long time to, mm-hmm. 
you know, try to keep up your weight, keep up your strength. And, and, you know, I'm just an average Joe that was, you know, working out like crazy and just trying to stay up with all the NFL players that were elite Mm -hmm. and that were just physically gifted. And not that I wasn't, but comparatively speaking, I was just your average guy out there. So you were going to do whatever it took to hold on to that dream. Mm -hmm. And you took matters in your own hands. So many people were doing it that I felt like, man, I have to. You have to do it. You know, but I did. I mean, I had It's kind of like Adderall in college Mm -hmm. now. You're in college. You have these hard classes. Adderall's thing. Is it? Oh, well, I was at at USC. Mm Mm-hmm. And I was at one of the local pubs where all the kids go study, hang out, and eat. And, yeah, I was listening to these girls talk, and it was the same thing. What is Adderall? Adderall Adderall is a prescribed medication Mm -hmm. for attention deficit disorder and several other learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. And it can be so effective. It's speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, basically, it forces it, it forces you to focus. Yeah, yeah, and it doesn't have the same impact on everybody, but the consequences of it are significant, and it's highly addictive. Yes, mm-hmm. and anyway, when you were talking about steroids, I thought, well, now we yeah. have Adderall in college, so right. yeah, it's so you began to take the steroids. My senior year, so my mm-hmm. my plan was my freshman year. If I didn't gain the weight that I needed by my senior year, I would. I would take a cycle, which I did. Mm-hmm. I, I normally went from 205 to 220 in the off season. I got up to 235. I was stronger than ever, faster than ever. And I'm like, this is this is great. You know, yeah. it's going to work. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so I ended up having a, a record-setting season my senior year. I, I broke the record for sacks um, mm-hmm. at San Diego State. I was honorable mention All-American in all-conference. Mm-hmm. So I had a good season, but I didn't get drafted because they come out your, your junior year and they test you. And so I was 209. I ran a 4.7. And by the time my senior year rolled around, I was 235 and running a 4.5. So the steroids did what they were supposed to, mm-hmm. I guess. My second year in the league is when I, I truly felt convicted. I, I repented. And I'm just like, you know what? I don't want to do this. What did you learn about being an athlete about training that has served you well in life. Let's talk about the things that served you well. Serving me well, uh, you pour your life into what you do, especially if you're an underdog or if you are just trying to compete every single year. And it makes you, it it changed me. I, I went from a so-so student to a straight-A student. I mean, I would hyperventilate during tests because I was just so intense and I wanted to get an A and I just, I had to get an A. My last year in college, um, when I came back after my career was over, I, for the first time, got straight A's and I just needed to prove that I could do it. And and I think there was just a, a switch that flipped in me that was, you know, this is how hardcore you can be. My life was... You know, for eight years in the NFL, it was fairly hardcore. You know, I, I, I didn't know at the time. I just thought, man, this is a pressure cooker. <laughs> you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> I mean, we're, we're going at it and it's just high stakes. And so that year in 89, when I turned, I just said, Lord, no matter what, I'm going to trust you. If you don't want me in the league, I'm out. So I remember late in that season, it was week 15. It was late in the season. I had already broken my back, fractured it, right? I couldn't practice. The doctors would shoot my back with Novocaine and then I'd pop muscle relaxers just so I can go out and play. And we were mm-hmm. making a playoff run. So week 15, I walked out onto the field. I had skinny arms. This is like, you know, seven, eight weeks post taking steroids wow. and all the effects had worn off. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. what was so significant about this, this game, this day was that I saw Chuck on the field. He had a, he had a field pass that day. I walked up to Chuck and he said, Hey, how's it going? I said, Brother, I feel I feel a little defeated. All the effects are gone. My arms are skin. You know, just I had that conversation with him. I went out and I was the NFC Player of the Week. I had three sacks, two caused fumbles, a fumble recovery, and not to make this about me, it was about God showing me that Brett, you don't need steroids. That's right. To to do this, mm-hmm. yeah. it doesn't mean that I'm gonna I'm gonna play the next year, but it just it, it meant to me that he had a plan. He had provisions. And no matter what, I mean, as long as I worked and worked hard and he saw fit that it was his will, then I was going to be in the league. Yeah, and it's not till the chips are down, right? And mm-hmm. we reach the end of ourselves. Yep. Something I caught in what you were saying, the shift, the internal shift that took place was from being driven 
mm-hmm. to feeling compelled. Those are different things. One is the function of our flesh. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do oh, yeah. whatever I want, yep. however I want, whatever it's going to take, I'm going to do, right? Mm-hmm. That's when we're driven. But when we're feel compelled, that's when our soul's engaged, our mind, our heart, yeah. our feelings, right? Yep. Our deepest convictions. And that's there's a difference. And it's interesting seeing your mentor there mm-hmm. on the side, and it kind of grounded you too. Yeah. And how important are these people mm-hmm. in our lives? How important is it the people that we choose to allow in our inner circle? Because, yes, of course, there's. I always refer to what happens in this quantum field of energy that draws our convictions one way or another, mm-hmm. right? That appeals for our deepest convictions and our choices. Yep. But how important was it to have somebody with skin on that highly, you knew? Highly important. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. What yeah. happened from that point on? From that point on, I remained with the Rams uh, for two more years, and I was clean. 89, I had a pretty good season. 1990, I played more. I had a better season. I was clean. I was natural. 91, I actually, uh, Jeff Fisher came in as a defensive coordinator Mm -hmm. and gave me the opportunity to start. And I started that year. So I progressed with playing time, contracts and things like that. And then I finally, after four years, each year I was protected because back then we had plan B free agency. So Every year I was protected, and these people that weren't protected were going out and making twice as much as you know they, they had. But What do you mean by protected? They would protect 37 players each year, and restrict really is what it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would restrict you to no free agency, so you they locked you down on the Rams. Sphere of government, they direct, regulate, control, and they restrain yep. you. Yeah. yeah, physically in the most practical way. It was a government. There was no, no open free agency back then like mm-hmm. there is now. And so you were kind of locked down, but right. at the same time, you know, I, I looked at it as it was just, you know, it, it felt good to be protected to, for them to say, Hey, we want you, you're in our top 37. Yeah. It was a guarantee for you. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And the steroid decision, that was your conscience. It was you saying no more. Mm-hmm. Did you go back on steroids after that? I did. You this did. isn't a, yeah. Yeah. I, what year after having a lot of success, I went to the Atlanta Falcons got cut, had a terrible off season. I got sick. I lost all my strength. I'm like, Lord, what's going on? You know, it, I, I wanted to do this clean. I wanted to do this naturally. And I was clean in 92, but it was humid. It was, you know, Swanee, Georgia in the middle of summer. It was just, <laughs> I, I would literally go in. Uh, so I got sick late in June, lost all my strength, lost everything. And I mean, talk about like an eye opener. I mean, that's, my season's coming up in a, in a month, month and a half. I need to be on my A game. Yeah, so, right. so I'm sick. I had the flu for like one or two days, wiped out everything, literally. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm skinny, I'm weak. And so I just started to build back up back as up much me. as I could, as fast as I could. Did you stay in touch with Chuck during oh, yeah, that time? For you sure. Did. Yep. So it was good. So he was still encouraging mm-hmm. you. Yep. But it's true. When we're training, it's a difficult balance to strike between the things that are required of us, the things that we know we have to do, and we feel a measure of responsibility for, especially when you get traded like that. You want to go and perform. You yeah. don't want to go and flop. Yep. And so I'm sure you felt a level. There's ways we rationalize, right? Mm-hmm. All kinds of things yep. to accommodate the things that we know we have to do. Sure. So I got cut that year, and then I came back, and I had just time to think, time to figure out you know, what I want to do next. And then, so I went back on a cycle to get big enough to go back. And I just thought, you know, in my insecurity, I needed to do that. Got signed with the 49ers. Jeff Fisher was, they were fired after the 91 season. He was my coordinator. So he goes to the 49ers, brings me over. I had a really good off season, had a good training camp, made the team. And then the following year with the Houston Oilers, same thing. You know, I started to dabble a little bit thinking, okay, I need to, because I, I had gotten cut from the 49ers because I was injured. I had a hamstring injury week after week after week. And finally, mm-hmm. they, after a few games, they just said, no, that's, you know, so they cut me. And then I really was like, okay, now I you know, really need to get back into the league. And at that point I just said, you know, I, I went to a Bible study in 94 and the pastor, I remember he said, you guys are here 80 years give or take. He goes, what you do with your 80 years really defines 
the afterlife. And I went home that day, flushed it down the, the toilet, uh, whatever I was about to take. And I'm like, I don't care this time. I, I do not care what, what happens from, from here on out. I said, I'm, I'm following you, Lord. I'm not going to compromise. What year was that? That was 1994. 94. And mm-hmm. so I had a good season then, played the whole year. Mm-hmm. And then 95 was just absolute blessing. Panthers. Carolina Panthers, the yeah. inaugural year. Our owner came in, he addressed the team. He just said, guys, this is your first year. So whether you win one game or all 16, just go out and have fun. Yeah. So we had a hall pass for that year. And it was incredible. It was, inc- you know, it was the best year of your was, career, you yeah, think? Yeah, I think so. It was so you know, much fun. Looking at these numbers, I always listen with a pen in my hand. Uh-huh. It occurred to me that 1984, you were 19. Mm-hmm. 1994, you're 29 years old. Mm-hmm. That's a decade yeah. from when the seeds of faith were planted and that you had a deeper sensitivity, perhaps, to the deepest convictions of your heart. Yeah. And God stirred your heart and you heard that voice, Brett, you were meant for more than this. Mm-hmm. But I want our listening audience to understand that the grace of God is the economy of heaven, is the grace of God. The currency of time is money, but the economy of heaven is grace. And I just want to point out that that's like 10 years Mm -hmm. before you really said, wow, Yeah, 10 years of training, 10 years of planting, Mm -hmm. right? 10 years of doing battle with yourself. Yeah. And your convictions and th- those seasons come and they go, but it's amazing. There's a decade of your life. Yep. What happened after 1995? After 95, I retired. I had enough. And I think they probably had enough of me. <laughs> <laughs> right? I just finished my degree in finance and went to work. Got married. Married. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Got married. And it's just, you know, the seasons of life and, you know, sin can, can have its effect on you. And if you're open to allowing things to come in like it, like football was an idol. And I didn't really even realize uh, probably until maybe 89, but I, I think it's even after my career looking back thinking, you know, football was an idol and I placed it above God and, and here are the markers and why. And, and so God is that. not defined by, by messing up. I'm defined by, by the Lord's faithfulness. I'm defined by, ultimately, he gave me another shot. It's not a one-time event, is no. it? To repent, to turn, no. to go the other way. It's a continuous no. thing. Yeah, and, and I, I always felt like, what is wrong with me? I mean, I'm a professing believer, but yet I, I'm doing some of this stuff. And then, you know, a lot of the other guys were just, they seemed so rock solid, right? And their convictions. And their convictions. What do and you maybe think? they were. I, you know, I grew up, you know, I, I, I didn't really know Christ growing up. When I was in fourth grade, I remember thinking, God, what, you know, what's this all about? And thinking of God and thinking of how he created all of us and trying to, you know, and I had some upbringing. I mean, I did go to church a couple of times here and there. And then I dated a cheerleader in high school and we, she took me to her Catholic church. And I remember seeing Jesus up on the cross, you know, and, and, but I couldn't go up and do communion. But I just, you know, that was kind of what I grew up you know, not really knowing God. And then, and then when I came to know him, you know, I still had a lot of bad habits to break, right? Mm-hmm. It just doesn't, you know, yeah. like that. It doesn't it's go a away. conflict. Well, what's interesting in hearing, yeah, but it's interesting in hearing your story. And we talk a lot about that here, Natalie, mm-hmm. but that quiet, still voice that calls us, Hey, you were meant for more than this. Mm-hmm. I made you in my image, a spirit working through a soul and a body. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I've given you an identity, and your identity comes from design. Your identity comes from mom and dad, mm-hmm. and your identity comes from your ancestors. And I've made you for a purpose. If you can just learn how to love, and you know that I'm big on this, right? Understanding attachment. Yep. If you can begin to understand the hungers that drive you, right? Mm-hmm. And if you can stop, pause, recall, you will heal and put all the pieces together. And those three things and understanding those three components that we break down, Natalie, I know you're going to talk about this, but in our 40 days of rest, it's transformational. But when you're 19, and even in 1984, we weren't having these conversations in the same way that we are today. Because mental health, and as we know, anxiety and depression, we're going to start talking about that in a minute. 
they're crippling a generation. Mm-hmm. So thank God so many of us have dedicated our lives to understanding and not settling. You too. Yeah. All of us, right? Those of us that don't want to settle, we dedicate our lives to understand, wait, what am I doing here? And what's happening to me? And why am I convicted? And why do I feel driven to do some things, but compelled to do others? Mm-hmm. What's even the difference between those things, right? right? Our flesh drives us. Our soul compels us. Those are different things. And as we grow into an understanding, you, and we, we've had several of these discussions, but we can begin to understand the anatomy of what makes us human, what we're doing in time, the beauty and the ashes, something amazing starts happening. Everything that we're ashamed of, we regret, sometimes mm-hmm. dies, right? Yep. And it takes a lot of us with them. But when something dies, it's a parable of the seed, something beautiful grows in its stead. And I want you to talk a lot, of, a little bit about, in the context of family and marriage and relationships and parenting, mm-hmm. the things that mm-hmm. died over that decade and the things that have grown in its stead. Mm-hmm. And your training helps sustain you to kind of endure and persevere through it all, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. I had a longing to to make money. I remember my English teacher, my sophomore year in college, said, "You know, what do you want to do?" I said, "I don't really care. I just want to make a lot of money." You know, and maybe that was idol number two. Oh yeah, it was. And and football and and money went hand in hand because you make football, you're going to make a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. At least I thought. So the idol of money that I hadn't dealt with, I was never really materialistic. You know, I mean, if you look at, I mean, you saw my house; it's nothing to speak of, right? I have. TV trays and where I should have a, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I just, I'm a minimalist. Yeah. I don't care about materialism, but I wanted to have enough. I wanted to be secure. I didn't want to have to depend on making money. And I remember I was finally at the goal line because I, I made a lot of money after, um, after the NFL more in one year than I made in the NFL, my entire career, just mm-hmm. in, in the mortgage industry, started a mortgage company and ran it. And it was like printing money. I was at the goal line. And I remember thinking, this is so, I mean, this is, it was incredible. I, I was doing what I wanted to do. I was helping people. I was, you know, all these different things. However, at the end of the day, God took away that idol. And I, I sold my company right before the crash. And then when the crash happened, it, it literally took down all of my investments, all of my income, the, the agreement that I had had to sell the company, the stock that was you know supposed to be worth $12 million was worth zero wow. overnight. I mean, literally just with mm-hmm. you know the whole... And I remember. The engineer behind that was Bill Clinton and uh, Barney Frank. And they got together and said, everyone should own a home. And then all of a sudden, liberal lending came in and it just ravaged, the, you know. And I, did, I had no idea. I didn't know the, the background of, of all that. I was just, you know, enjoying the fruits of the, of the labor of, of all these different programs. And the opportunities, programs right? And, and the opportunity, yeah. Yeah. And I was an opportunist. And I said, hey, you know what? If we can get this person into this loan and we can help them out, wonderful, you know. Yeah. But at that time, it was, I mean, I started my mortgage company in 2001. I retired from the NFL in 96. And my last year was 95, but in 96, I declared to retire and then finished my degree. But 97, I started in mortgage. And then for a couple of years, I got out, went into financial planning, then back into mortgage. I had the hunger to run a company. Um, my parents were self-employed. My sister's self-employed. My brother's self-employed. I mean, we were all just, you yeah. know, we just... Enterprising. You know, yeah. Well, and so, the attributes of an athlete are very transferable to entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. so it yeah. comes naturally. And the three of us, we all got inducted into our high school hall of fame at the wow. same time, so we we all were, you know, athletes. So you really trained you. You implemented a lot of the same principles. It was really comfortable for you. You built these businesses. Tell me about the impact because idols destroy our lives. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the impact this had on your marriage and your family. Going to work each day, I, I really felt like. I was a walking paycheck. I mean, the, I was bringing home the money and more and more of it. And then, you know, the more I would bring home, the more I would get spent. And then to the point where it just, I just felt like, man, I can't, you know, I, I can make enough. But if everything comes crumbling down, you know, we're, and so, and it did. In 2007 rolled around, I had investments everywhere. I had 
I was diversified. And, you know, what really hit me was, I mean, I could have sustained everything, but what hit me was that the investments went down so fast that I, and and a lot of them were illiquid. And so that happened coupled with my income went from, you know, six, uh, seven figures rather down to zero overnight. And then I was just, I found myself feeding the company, putting more and more money into the company just to to try to keep it afloat until I finally realized that the gig is in, you know, the banks are done and we can't pull out of this. And then I, I pulled out finally. And so it, it, it just became, you know, Hey Brett, now you, you need to go reinvent yourself. I'm like, I don't know if you can reinvent yourself in this economy. It was just terrible, you know? And I tried, I was flipping homes. I was doing whatever I could with my brother. And then that to a large degree led to the demise of my relationship, my marriage. It's interesting while you were speaking, it occurred to me again, how idols drive us. Mm-hmm. They blind us. Yep. They really deceive us. They do. And it isn't till we begin to hemorrhage and we become bankrupt emotionally, spiritually, physically, our mm-hmm. relationships, all these areas of our life that we really fully grasp and understand the consequence of why this is a big deal. Mm-hmm. Every single person that's listening to us right now mm-hmm. might not know God or might not have a desire to know God. They're okay. They're content. But there's something in the conscience of every single person listening that says, I was meant for more than this. Because ultimately at 19, from Mm -hmm. 19 to 29, Mm -hmm. you felt that nudge in your soul. And everybody feels that. We just silence it. Mm -hmm. But I love how God's described as the hound of heaven, because I do think he pursues us for a lifetime. And we have so many opportunities to silence the voice, the noise all around us. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted to point out that you're articulating so well how the noise came in the form of idols for you. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was important to point out to our listening audience, that's how the voice comes to all of us, right? Is in the form of things. People can become idols. Relationships can become idols. Fear can become idols. Food can become an idol, right? Yep. Houses, things, stuff. I mean, all kinds of things. It's, it's whatever thing distracts you from silencing that inner voice that says, I was meant for more to, than this. Mm-hmm. Whatever silences that or obscures that, that's an idol. Yeah. And they will destroy you. Yeah. They'll destroy, like you're so articulating so well brought so much destruction in your life. It did. And I remember dealing with that idol. I was in a bonus bonus room. This is after buying the big house and everything was going well before the collapse. And I remember the, the market had shifted. And I remember sleeping in my theater room. <laughs> I had a theater room, right? Mm-hmm. I remember sleeping in the theater room on the sofa because I just wasn't, I, I was fearful. I was like, okay, mm-hmm. how am I going to get my kids through college? How am I going to do this? How am I going to do that? And we're running out of money. And it was just like, devastating, you know, to me who was hanging on to money as my security blanket instead of the Lord. And I knew it was wrong, but I just didn't, you know, when we live in this physical world and, you know, we're required to go out and make money. God's not just going to hand us money, right? right. But my fear suggested that I wasn't trusting enough. Yeah. Idols, by the way, make us fearful Mm -hmm. and unstable in our wills, cynical, angry, fearful, resentful, bitter. Oh yeah. I was trying to get to a point where you know, I could make $30,000 a month without ever investing money again, you know, to the point where it was just like, you know, it's all passive income. I was, yeah. Yeah. Passive income. And, and that was kind of, you know, at the time the nut that we had accumulated and I'm like, Whoa, what are we doing? You know, I'm a finance major. I know better than this. This is not, you know, it's just, it's ridiculous to spend that kind of money per, per month. And I I was out, I was out making it, not spending it. I, I drove a, $40,000 $40,000 car when I was making a million or two a year, year after year after year. And, you know, my means were low, but it was just, you know, there's money being spent. And I was just like, man, I, I, okay, how am I going to keep up with this? I got to figure out a way. But it was the Lord saying, trust me, you know, trust me in this, you know, and also adjust your finances and figure out, you know, Make get, some changes, get things yeah, in yeah. balance, which I mm-hmm. did. And, and, I was willing to change. I was willing to do anything just so I have peace of mind. And, and I hadn't slept a, a 
good quality night of sleep in a couple, three years probably. I was in my theater room on the sofa sleeping in this big house with a view and everything else and thinking, I hate this. I I hate this house. It means nothing to me. My kids are my, you know, they're the ones that I need to protect, provide for my wife as well, right? Protect, provide for. And I'm like, this is just ridiculous that we're in this big house. And I I long to go back to our, our family home, which we did. And in the bonus room, on my knees, I just repented of some mm. very scary things that were, I mean, at the time, it was just scary to turn from because I'm thinking, I need, you know. I, uh, crutches. They were the crutches. They were. I'm like, Lord, if I turn from this, it's going to be devastating. It's going to be devastating. Can you say and, what they, those are? Do you remember what those were? Yeah. One was, I felt convicted that my wife and I were going through a divorce. And so I, I turned from that mm. and I, and I'm like, I, I, Lord, I will not go through a divorce. And I made it a point to turn from that. And then the other from one, the things that led to that divorce. Oh no, no, just, just the divorce itself. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, having filed for divorce, I filed and I just saw that it's, it's destroying my family and I don't want, I don't want this. I, mm-hmm. I, I will do anything. You know, I wasn't happy with my marriage, but I said, Lord, I trust you. You know, I will mm-hmm. turn and I will ask her back. And so that was one. Another one was just had to do with finances and how I was making money with my brother. I just felt, you know, it was planted in me at an early stage that I, mm-hmm. I was unequally yoked. Mm-hmm. That I shouldn't be in business with my brother. Mm-hmm. And so I, I put that out there as well. But somebody had counseled me and said, no, Brett, you're, you know, you're not unequally yoked with your brother. He's ethical and everything else. And so I, I kind of put that to rest. That wasn't a factor. But but that night when I, when I turned from those three things, I just gave them up to the Lord and I'm like, Lord, you have my attention. You know, I'm not going to worry anymore. I'm not, I'm not going to worry because I felt like worrying was a sin. It says only be concerned with what's going on today and don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry about getting your kids through college. Don't worry about, you know, how you're going to do all this financial planning. And I went to sleep that night and for the first time I slept eight hours and I woke up every single morning for the next probably two to three months with either a scripture in my head or a song, a Christian song in my heart every single morning. It was so sweet. And it was just the Lord saying, Brett, you know, you're trusting me in this and you're turning from these things and I'm blessing you as a result. It was absolutely amazing. It was liberating. Something that struck me as you were speaking is we have a tendency sometimes when we feel deep conviction and regret and shame mm-hmm. and guilt about mm-hmm. things. We think about all the things we have to do and we should do. But what you just said was that you decided what you would not do, mm-hmm. that you knew violated your conscience. Yep. And I think it's so much easier to decide one or two or three things for our listening audience again, that you can decide what you will not do. You will not draw a line in the sand, I guess. And I'm not crossing that line. And all the problems that come with that decision and all the conflict, it's so important to know that when the foundations of our lives are destroyed, that there is this energy. I think it's God, and he manifests himself in personal ways to us. But there's still this energy that we can describe it as good or bad, right or wrong, Mm -hmm. angels, demons, whatever, darkness or light. However you want to discuss it, it ultimately manifests in a very personal conversation with the living God. And you have to decide what you will not do to violate that gauge he put inside of you, which is your conscience. So I think it's just so good. I want to point out something too. and, And of course, you can always correct me on this, but the original repentance that you went through when you were going through the process of taking steroids for football. Mm -hmm. And of course you had that idol. That repentance was essentially your training for then doing this later in life. Mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of what I see is that, you know, we go through these bouts of training in life and then the fruits of that sometimes, and Darcy mentioned this in the last episode, or sometimes you don't see the fruits of that until years later. Yeah. For years later. But even in that, we're still invited into this place of rest, which is a place of peace and surrender. True. In the midst of the battles, because Mm -hmm. really you described 
the divorce situation, was, the financial. Yeah, I was still so. in the thick of it. I Lord hadn't pulled me out. He just gave me peace and comfort mm-hmm. and joy through the midst of this tough time in, in my life. Well, I hear people often say, I'm praying about it. I'm praying about it. God's not doing anything. He's not listening to me. Mm-hmm. And something that I heard loud and clear years and years and years ago is tell them they're asking me for something. I gave them the power and the authority to do. Yeah. So really, the message of Christianity is God reaching man. Mm-hmm. The message of every other religion is all the things men do to reach God. Yep. And so we have the deep conviction that there's this field, that there's this presence, that this is very real, personal, intimate creator God that sustains mm-hmm. everything according to the counsel of his will and is always reaching out to communicate to us. Mm-hmm. And something that I didn't expect, but that has come out, that's been compelling about your story as a professional athlete is when you first heard that nudge and really the provisions he's made, even until now mm-hmm. we're dealing with some other more oh, sure. challenging things that you and I talk about quite a bit. But even now that that authority, that power, that reign in the form of grace is really manifesting itself continuously. Like Natalie said, during the steroid encounter, there was still a door out. Mm-hmm. During the divorce, and all that, there was still a door out and of growth. And sometimes things don't turn out exactly yeah. like we anticipate them to. Exactly. But sooner or later, God is faithful. Yeah. If we can understand that repentance is not a one-time thing, turning, and listening to the convictions of our heart, turning and going the other way, right? It's not a one-time thing. It's something that we're going to be challenged with until we take our last breath. Mm-hmm. But if we can acquire the discipline that comes with training as an athlete— And we understand the seasons of life that in the midst of training, we have to learn how to garden and we have to understand that sometimes there's a time to fight. Mm -hmm. We can extend ourselves, I think, a lot of mercy, overlook the offenses we commit against ourselves and receive that constant grace that's there to guide us to that finish line. Yeah. And I think your story encompasses a lot of that. Did that make sense, Natalie? It does. And I I think, too, like just something to mention as well, like training doesn't just look like studying for school, for example. A lot of times training is brutal. No, it's always brutal. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. It it doesn't always look the way that you think it's going to look. And something that you mentioned, too, was was in your your worry and in your fear. Mm -hmm. I heard a saying recently that says your worry of tomorrow steals your peace for today. And it was as soon as that you stopped worrying and you gave things over to God that you felt peace and you're able to sleep. The root of worry are idols in our lives that usurp and silence that quiet, still voice in your heart that Brett addressed a number of times and said, I was meant for more than this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We're going to have you back, Brett, because there's a lot of layers to your story that I think bear a great deal of relevance to the message of rest. And I labor, as does Natalie, as does our whole team, to really help people have a different concept and understanding of rest. Mm -hmm. Because we look at seasons of rest in our life as a time of inactivity, of doing nothing, of relaxing, when in fact that's not what is entailed in resting. When we go to sleep doesn't mean we rest. So rest is about accessing some of these more complex functions that happened when we sleep. Mm-hmm. One thing I've grown to really respect about you is the conviction that you have over the welfare of your family and your boys, mm-hmm. your, your kids, and making sure you finish well with them. And yeah. so we're going to talk about that in the context of being a dad and families and yeah. what it is to be a man. You know, yeah. And I'm growing into that. You know, I just uh, I love that. The older that I get, the more that I realize that I need to I need to finish well. I need to, you know, put my time and energy into them. And training, huh? Training and discipling. And yep, absolutely. Yeah. And one of the things that struck me and I wrote some things down here is that you're honest, you're sensible you are transparent mm-hmm. and you're humble. Yeah. And one of my favorite verses is a man is perfected by the things he suffers. And I think it's naive to think that because you were at the top of your game and had this really successful, wonderful career, both in sports and then in finances, that it's naive to think that there isn't a lot of suffering 
mm-hmm. and the layers of all of that. And so I hope people find encouragement that life does come in seasons. And during those seasons, we plant, we train, and then there's times to fight. And I know that to some extent, that's the season of life that you're in now. And I think the hemorrhaging soul of our nation is crying out for people with deep convictions. Mm-hmm. And I believe men are instrumental. They have authority in, a home, in the home. Yeah. And women are instrumental as well. They have a lot of power. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's not a question of value. It's a question of function. I try desperately to restore that, as you know, in both how I address these topics and also how I coach people and help them live and love and finish well. So I want to have you back if you are able to and talk around Father's Day. Yeah. That'll be a perfect time in Mm -hmm. June. Mm -hmm. And we'll record earlier, but we'll have you back and discuss that because I think it's so important. Yeah. I'd love to come back. Thank Thank you you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Of course. All right, everyone. Keep your eye out for a brand new practical application podcast coming to you by Virginia and Dr. Lee Cowden. So Dr. Cowden is not only a board member of REST, but also our medical advisor due to his extensive background and experience in the holistic health industry. We're so looking forward to its launch and know that this will greatly benefit all who listen. For updates about rest and this podcast, please visit our Instagram or Facebook, The Place of Rest. If you would like more information about Virginia or to support and join the cause of rest, please go to virginiadixon.com forward slash collaborate. Thank you so much for listening to Rest with Virginia Dixon. We'll see you next week.